Well, it is a joy to be at Bible Baptist Church in Simpsonville, South Carolina. And I want to say how thankful I am for your pastor and his family. And I am thankful for your church and what God is doing here. And I want to say this very quickly from the onset. Um, this is a miracle church. You're sitting in a miracle church. And, and I say this, and I, I don't say that everywhere, but I say it here because... I've, I've saw what God has done at this church and where he has brought you from and where you are today. And please, please hear my heart when I say this. This is not happening everywhere. Right. And, and you're sitting in the blessings of God tonight. You're just sitting right in the blessings of God. And uh, I am so privileged and I am so overjoyed for the opportunity to be here tonight and to have the chance to open the word of God tonight and to share the truth of the Bible. And uh, I love the name of this church, Bible Baptist Church. And so if we're here, we may ought to open a Bible. I think that'd be a good idea. And so I'm going to ask you to find your place in God's Word in the last book of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi tonight. We're going to dive right in to the Word of God together this evening, Malachi. Also, hold your place in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 tonight. We're going to be in both, and then we'll come right back to the book of Malachi. Now make sure you remember, it's not Malachi. It's not the great Italian prophet, all right? This is Malachi, all right? We're going to be in the book of Malachi tonight, and we're going to be looking in chapter number one in the Word of God. And I want to say again how privileged I am to open the Word of God with you and to praying that God will just use His Word uh, in all of our hearts and our lives together this evening. Malachi in chapter one, let me begin reading in verse number 6 tonight. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you. Notice who he's talking to. O priest, that despise my name. And you say, wherein have we despised thy name? Well, you offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and you say, Wherein have we polluted thee? And that you say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. Now, I'm going to come back to this verse in a second, but I want you to notice verse 7, he says, You offered polluted bread upon mine altar, and then he calls that altar the table of the Lord in the same verse. The altar and the table of the Lord are going to be used interchangeably in Malachi chapter 1. Come to verse 8. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Now I pray you beseech God that he'll be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means, will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. Now I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But you have profaned it. And that you say, here it is again, 
the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. He said also, Behold, what a weariness is it. Ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. Ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought the offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and boweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. And here it is again. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Praise the Lord for the reading of his word together tonight. We come to the last book of the Old Testament. This is not just the last book of the Old Testament in the way our Bible is laid out. It's also the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament. This is the last book chronologically. This is the last prophet that God is going to send to the nation of Judah for 400 years. After Malachi finishes prophesying, after he finishes giving the word of God to the people of God, the nation of Judah will not hear another God-sent prophet until John the Baptist 400 years later. It's literally like this is the last message the nation of Judah is going to hear. Let me ask you a question. If tonight was the last message you were going to hear, I think it would change the way we listen to preaching, wouldn't it? I think we would go, wait a minute, this could be it. This is it. Well, this is the last message that the nation of Judah is going to hear from God for 400 years, and God sends a man by the name of Malachi, whose name literally means Jehovah's messenger. He is coming with a message for God, from God, for the people of God. And Malachi is going to express one central truth throughout the book of Malachi. And here it is. The theme of the book of Malachi is this word, robbery. Robbery. The people of God were robbing God of his rightful glory. They were robbing God of his rightful worship. They were not offering to God that which God was worthy of. In fact, in our text that we read tonight, God said to them, I am a great king. And he said this to the nation of Judah, there's coming a day when people from around the world, the Gentiles, they're going to offer incense to my name. There's coming a day where universally the name of God is going to be exalted. The name of God is going to be great. The name of God is going to be adored and worshipped everywhere. The God that Judah you're taking for granted is the God that the nations will worship one day. It's a powerful book because here is the essence of what was happening in the book of Malachi. The people of God who were privileged beyond imagination because they had the word of God, the things of God, the blessings of God, the provision of God. Here's what was happening in the book of Malachi. They had got used to God. They had gotten used to the things of God. The Bible says in this passage of scripture, and we read it in verse number seven, but he talks about the altar. And then he talks about the bread. And he talks about the offering this uh, polluted bread on the table of the Lord. The word altar and the word table of the Lord are used interchangeably. 
What was interesting is Israel was still underneath the sacrificial system. And you know this as well as I do, but that altar was how God was appeased with the sacrifices that the people of God would bring for their sins. And so they would put this animal on the altar and the blood would be shed upon this altar or upon the table of the Lord. And literally, because the blood was shed, the people would have access and a way to God. Now notice what was happening in Malachi chapter 1. The people were snuffing at the table of the Lord. You know what that means? It means this, that they were growing weary of bringing the, all, of the, uh, the sacrifice to the altar. They would snuff at it. The word snuff was this. It was the idea that they didn't like the smell of it. It smelled awful. It was wearisome. It was a hard thing to protect the lamb to make sure it was without spot and without blemish and then to lay that lamb down and to take the life of that lamb. It was a wearisome thing. It was a burdensome thing. And it became a heavy thing according to Malachi chapter 1. So much to the point that, watch carefully, the people began instead of bringing their best to the Lord, they began to bring what I call the leftover offering. To the Lord. Man, it's too weary to bring this beautiful lamb without spot and blemish. Man, it's man, it smells awful. This process takes so long. My goodness, we just keep doing the same thing again and again. We've been doing this for thousands of years. Man, this sacrificial system is getting old. But don't miss this. It was that altar that was making a way for them to have access to God. And the thing that they were getting tired of is the thing that was blessing them the most. Now, this is not the message, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's another table. See, this table belonged in the old covenant. We don't live in the old covenant. How many want to praise the Lord with me tonight? We don't live in a sacrificial system where we've got to bring animals to an, uh, to an altar and sacrifice them and bring the best that we can bring. Listen, thank God that Jesus Christ, when he was seen by John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, we don't have to offer any more sacrifices. God looked at Jesus and said, I I accept that sacrifice and it is finished. No more sacrifices are needed. Praise God. We don't live under that covenant. We have a new one today. But hold on. Just as that covenant had a... Are you all right? I just jump right in and start preaching. I just get after it. I'm sorry. I should have visited with you for a minute. But just as that covenant had a table... The covenant we live in has a table too. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The same language is used about the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians 10, just hold your place in Malachi. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible says in verse number 16, the cup of blessings which we bless is not, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That word communion is where we get the word Eucharist. It means thanks. And notice what he said, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now notice verse 18. Behold, Israel after the flesh 
Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the, there it is, the altar. What say I then that the idol is anything or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Now here's the verse. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Now notice verse 22. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now notice, the old covenant had a table. The new covenant has a table. But notice the Bible says the new covenant has two tables. Paul's writing to the church of Corinth in chapter 10, and you know what he's saying to them? He's saying, the Lord has a table, but so do the demons of hell. The demons of hell have a table. You see, when we come to the Lord's Supper, and by the way, this message is not on the Lord's Supper. So I'd love to talk about it. But, but listen, this is not on the Lord's Supper, but when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we partake of the elements, you know what we're doing? We are sharing in the life of Christ and in the death of Christ and in the victory of Christ. That's what we're doing. Now notice this. The Bible says this, though. You cannot sit at the Lord's table and sit at the table of devils. Why? God's a jealous God. He's a jealous God you got to excuse yourself from the wrong table to sit at the right table. That's why in chapter 11, he said, that's why some are weak. That's why some are sick. That's why some even sleep. That's graveyard death. Why? Because they've taken the Lord's table too lightly. They're sitting at the devil's table Monday to Saturday, and on Sunday, they're sitting at the Lord's table. And the Lord is provoked to jealousy. Why? He's a great king. His name is great among the Gentiles. You see, God is very interested in the worship of his people. Now back in Malachi chapter 1, I want to take an Old Testament reality and bring it to a New Testament application. Because all scripture really is given by inspiration of God. And whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Listen to me, the Old Testament is the foundation for all the New Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. We need the Old Covenant still to understand the New Covenant. Now notice this, he gives us this illustration of Judah. And what was the great sin of Judah? Don't miss this. They stopped giving God their best. They stopped giving God their best. Tonight, for just a couple minutes, and I mean that, <laughs> sort of. We got Baptist bird waiting on us, don't we? We got to hurry. Tonight, I, I really want you to lean in on this thought tonight. And I want to talk to you as we're talking about revival on these Tuesday nights. I want to ask you a question Am I giving God my best? Am I giving God my best? There's something that appeals to me when I see someone that gives their best. I, I, I like sports. I know that I may be getting in trouble here, but I'm a North Carolina basketball fan. 
I have been for a long time. Do I see a little shouting? Do I see a little church? Do we have any Duke fans here? Never mind. Don't answer that question. We just want to, we don't want to grieve the spirit yet, all right? I, as a North Carolina basketball fan, I've been told from a very young age, you're not allowed to like the team in Durham. We don't even name them usually. I did just because graciousness and all that stuff, but... But, but, but I've been told that that rivalry is so intense that you can't have a real true Carolina fan that even has any admiration and respect for a Duke blue, blue devil. I mean, who likes a devil anyway? I mean, seriously. But I will say this. I remember growing up, preacher, and I remember watching those Carolina Duke games that were so intense. And I remember when, when, when Duke was on their run and they were really getting good and and I remember they had a little point guard by the name of Bobby Hurley. Anybody here? Man, my church would be throwing babies. I'm talking about sports. Man, it's serious. I mean, the Bible, okay, but sports, we're in, Pastor. Now listen, I remember Bobby Hurley, and I remember they had a game where Bobby Hurley had the flu. And he was sick. And Bobby Hurley, man, he checked himself in and out. Halftime, they put an IV in his arm because he was dehydrated. But listen, I watched him, and as much as I cannot stand the Duke Blue Devils, I watched Bobby Hurley, and here's what I watched. I watched a guy diving after basketballs. I watched a guy hitting clutch shots in the NCAA tournament in the Final Four game. I watched him hit free throws that iced and won the game. And after the game was over, he literally collapsed in exhaustion. And here's what I thought. As much as I hate Duke, and as much as I can't stand Bobby Hurley, i got to kind of respect it. You know why? Let me help you why. He gave his best. There's just something about it when somebody is giving their best because they believe so strongly in what they're doing. They are convinced that what they're doing really matters. They are assured that, listen, that what I do and the effort that I give is going to make a difference. And because of that, I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to put everything I've got into this because, man, the cause is worthy. There's just something about when somebody gives their best that just makes you want to stand up and just do this. Man, he's giving his best. I have three sisters, and all three of them are teachers. My three sisters, listen, they always are talking about teaching all the time. And so they bring it home. They talk about it. When we get together at meals as a family, they always want to talk about teaching. And they're always talking about ideas. They're always talking about some new things that they're trying. And as much as it annoys me to hear about classroom art and crafts and all the other stuff that they're doing, here's what I have to respect. They give their best. They give their best. There is something wonderful when someone cares enough about what they're doing to give their best. I'm subscribed to a lot of magazines, and some of them I'm not subscribed to, and people send our church all kinds of stuff. One of the magazines I subscribed to, I was reading it probably a few years ago, and I noticed this because I'm married to an English teacher, and she's a grammar Nazi. Anybody married to one of those, you understand what I mean? And so if there's a run-on sentence, we're going to hear about it. And uh, I downloaded something on my computer the other day called Grammarly. Now all my letters are perfect, and she doesn't get to correct me. Yes. Anyway, I'm reading this article. While I'm reading this article... Brother Steve, I noticed it was so sharp. 
the, everything on the outside was sharp, beautiful pictures, but there were four misspellings in the article. This is, a, this is a publication that goes to over 200,000 readers, a Christian publication. And I thought, my goodness, this went everywhere? Now, the grammar inside of me started highlighting. I will say I'm a little judgmental about it. I thought to myself, man, they missed this one. Three days later, I got the same publication sent back with it corrected in this letter from the editor. They said, we were informed that we sent out something that had misspellings and typos. And here's what they said. I'll never forget this. I still have the letter. They said this, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of better. And we're sorry. And we don't care how much it costs to correct it. We're going to make this right. You know what I did? I upped my subscription again. I said, I respect people that watch. They give their best. What happened in Israel? What happened in Judah? Do you think that there ever came a point in a time where they said, listen, man, God, you're not worthy anymore. I don't think that ever happened. I don't think they ever said, man, God, you don't love us anymore. And God, you don't. No, no, I don't think that ever happened. Here's what I believe happened. I believe they got used to the goodness of God. They got used to the blessings of God. They got used to the fact that they even had access to God through the altar and the table. And so instead of enjoying and worshiping God, they got used to him. And all of a sudden, what they began to give back to God reflected the spirit they developed about him. Tonight, real quickly, I want you to notice the indictment of God. The indictment of God in our passage. In verse number 11 through verse number 13, God comes and inspects what the people are bringing to the altar. In verse number 11, he talks about the fact that his name is great. In verse number 12, he says, you've profaned that great name by bringing polluted bread. Verse number 13, he says, you're bringing lambs that are blind and sickly and cancerous to the altar. Instead of bringing your best, you're bringing the leftovers. Instead of bringing what I'm worthy of, you're bringing that which doesn't matter anymore. Instead of bringing that which is the first fruits, you're bringing the last fruits. God says to the nation of Israel, I just want you to know that what you bring to me, how you worship me, don't forget this, I am watching what you bring. I see your effort. I understand what you're holding back and what you're giving. I understand the difference between your best and your leftovers. God says to them in this verse, and it's such a powerful phrase, but in verse number 13, he said, should I accept this of your hand? God gives them a vivid picture. And remember, the altar was where they worshiped. The altar was where they gave thanks. The altar was where they said, God is good to us. The altar was where they said, man, God, we are your chosen and blessed people. And God said this, when you bring that gift to the altar, I want you to think of it this way. You're putting it from your hands straight into my hands. Now that's powerful to me. Because I think about some of the sacrifices God calls us to as a church. He calls it the sacrifice of praise. Did you know the way we praise the Lord? God is watching the way we praise Him. 
Did you know this according to the book of Hebrews that when we're singing in the congregation, I love this, God is singing with us. That's what the Bible says. He sings with us. He participates in worship with, man, what a thought tonight. That while we're worshiping, he's worshiping with us. I wonder if it would change the way we sing, the way we worship, the way we come to the house of God. If we really believe what we're bringing, we're putting directly in the hands of God. And if we could see the hands of God, oh, what would we bring and put in his hands? God says, Israel, don't forget. You're bringing this from your hands to mine. The indictment of God, but notice the inspection of God. Here's his inspection, verse number eight. If you offer the blind for sacrifices, is it not evil? If you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Now notice this, this is powerful. Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy persons, saith the Lord. Now notice, here's what God says, okay? Just to help us understand this, Judah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring what you're bringing to me and offer it to the most important person in town. Okay? How, how many of you uh, grew up in the South? Can I see your hand for a second? How, my, my mom, when we would have somebody over that was really important, my mom would say something like this, oh, we've got company coming. And she would say this. She would say, we're going to put the dog on. Has anybody ever heard that before? Some of you are like, we've never heard that. We're very dignified. Okay, we, she said, we're going to put the dog on. You know what that meant? We're putting our best out. We're putting the fine china out. We're, hey, kids, y'all have to sit at the table and act like you sat at a table before, right? You know, I mean, don't embarrass the whole family, okay? Yeah, listen, use the fork. Put the napkin on your lap. I mean, all that stuff. Why? We're putting the dog on. We're putting the best we've got out there. Why? Because the person coming is very important. And we want to give our best. We want to at least put on a good show. (laughs) We want to make sure that, man, when they come, they understand this, that they're important. And because they're important, what we do and what we give, it matters so very much. We want to give our best. God said to the nation of Judah, He said, now I want you to give to your governor what you've been given to me. I want you to give to your governor what you've been offering to me. Bring that cancerous lamb and offer it to your governor. Bring that rotten bread and offer it to your governor. See if he'll accept you. See if he'll say, wow, thank you for being a blessing to me. Now notice this, this is so vital. Your behavior changes your belief. In other words, what you believe about someone changes your behavior towards that person. Gary Smalley's a writer. And Gary Smalley wrote a lot about marriage and wrote some great things about marriage and relationships. But Gary Smalley said this, and I love this. Gary Smalley said, the way to keep a good marriage is to never lose the... Factor. Can I spell for you? H U H. He said, Watch, here's what happens. The day of the wedding, the groom is standing here 
everybody in the churches out there and everybody goes through all the pomp and all the circumstance and all of a sudden the back door is open and the preacher says, everyone stand. Everybody stands. Everybody turns around when those doors open and that bride comes in. I've done it so many times, preacher. You've preached the weddings. Here's what I hear all through the crowd. Can we try it together? One, two, three. Oh. Oh. But you look at her. You know what I mean? We called the actor takes our breath away. <laughs> and the groom, <laughs> you know. <gasps> Here's what Smalley said. Smalley said, you want to have a good marriage? Never get over the <gasps> factor. I have a friend of mine traveled the world extensively. He came to our church probably six, seven years ago. He's an older gentleman in his 80s. His wife has gone on to heaven. He'll pop into our church once in a while, very successful businessman. He came and he said, John, take me to lunch somewhere. And I always take him wherever he wants to go. And we sat down together. And the Sunday he came, he had on the most beautiful tie I'd ever seen on in my life. I said, man, that is gorgeous, beautiful tie. And uh, we sat down to lunch and I said, man, that is a beautiful tie. Where did you get that tie? He said, I had it handmade in Germany. I said, man, that's beautiful. That's all I said about it. We had lunch, paid for his lunch. We're walking out. He pulled that tie off and tossed it to me. He said, you can have that tie. I said, man, you don't have to do that. Inside, I was like, thank you. <laughs> I said, you don't have to do that. He throws that tie to me. I looked at it, and it had nothing on the back of it. It was one of those ties. It had some wording in it. It's German. I don't speak German. And uh, I'm looking at this, and I said, man, this is beautiful. He goes, let me ask you something. He goes, you know how much that tie costs? I said, I have no idea, a couple hundred dollars? He said, that's a $3,200 tie. You did it. I heard it. I heard it. I heard. <gasps> Let me help you with something. There ain't no tie worth $3,200. Thank God we're not wearing them tonight. Somebody say amen in the house. The guy said to me, he goes, what are you going to do when you meet the guy in heaven who invented the ties? I said, he ain't going to be there. Anyway, that's another story. $3,200 for something nobody should have to wear. <gasps> Things like that cause us to stop for a minute. Psalm 4 says this of our God. Stand in awe and sin not. Stand in awe. Do you know what happened to Israel? The same thing that can happen to John Anderson. We lose the factor of who God is. Let me ask you a question tonight, church. When is the last time you stood in awe of your God? I mean, it just literally takes your breath away to think that God would look upon any of us and love us and would look on any of us and love us to the point where he would send his only begotten son 
to bleed and die for our sins. I know we've heard the story again and again. I know we've been to the altar again and again. I know that we've had the table again and again. I know you've heard John 3.16 again and again. I know you know Romans 5.8 by heart. I know you know the gospel. I know you've experienced the gospel. But when is the last time the gospel literally stopped you in your tracks and you said, oh God, the fact that you would even love me, the fact that you would even send your son to save me, the fact that you would forgive me, the fact that you would give me your Holy Spirit, the fact that you would give me a home in heaven, the fact that you would provide blessing after blessing after blessing upon me, the fact that I have peace, I have love in my heart, I have the joy of the Holy Ghost. Oh God, you've just been really good to me. Stand in awe. Don't lose the God said, offer it to your governor, what you're offering to me. Sarah and I lived in London with our kids. And uh, during that time, the U.S. president, who will remain unnamed, came for his first official visit to the United Kingdom. It's a customary thing amongst dignitaries and visiting cultures to make sure that they offer a gift to the visiting president or to the visiting king or queen from a country. There's actually in the United States, believe this or not, this will encourage you about how much taxes you pay. We pay four people full time on the White House staff to study cultures and what kind of gifts we ought to give to dignitaries. Doesn't that bless your heart tonight? Anyway. But it's a big deal because that gift many times can open a door or it can close the door. When the president came, the queen of England uh, had some gifts for him. And, and, and also the, the uh, prime minister, Gordon Brown, he gave the president of the United States a, a wooden plank from the ship, the last ship from the Wilberforce era. The last ship uh, that sailed, that, that literally was the last slaves that were set free in England, he gave him a plank from that ship, and one of the slaves had written, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And it was literally insured as priceless. So valuable. His daughters and wives were given a, a diamond necklace from the Victorian area. I mean, incredible gifts. In exchange... The president gave the Queen of England an iPod with 12 of his speeches on it. He gave Prime Minister Gordon Brown 25 DVDs that would not even work in the UK because they're different technology. One of them being a movie called The Patriot about the US, anyway. He gave Gordon Brown's daughter and his son Marine One models from the White House gift shop that cost $18 a piece. What happened? He didn't value the person that he was giving the, the gift to. Although the person who gave him the gifts valued him greatly. Boy, I read that and I thought to myself, what a shame. How ridiculous that is. But then I thought about myself 
and I thought about what the Lord Jesus Christ has given to me. And then I thought how many times I have brought so little and put it back in his hands. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if God says, John, you're not giving me your best because you don't love me like you should. The indictment of God, the inspection of God. Let me give you the instruction of God as we close today. How do we... How do we maintain our worship and high view of God? How how do we not bring the leftovers, but bring our best? How, How do we keep this right? There are three names given for God in Malachi chapter one. I want you to mark them down. Look in verse 14. But cursed be the deceiver, which hath the male in his flock and boweth. And sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. Now notice this. Here's name number one. For I am a great, will you say it with me, church? I'm a great what? King. When I think of a king, I think of one word. I think of the word reverence. You enter into the presence of a king, there should be reverence. Right? You enter in the presence of a king, that king deserves some reverence and some respect. And God says to the children of Israel and the nation of Judah, one day all around this world, and by the way, that day is coming, where every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is coming again and His name will be great among all the nations and he, we will enter into His presence with great reverence. That day is coming. But He said to the nation of Judah, You don't have to wait for that day. You can start reverencing me now. I think of a king. I think of reverence. Then he says in verse number 14, uh, excuse me, in verse number 6, the son honored his father and his servant, his master. When I think of the word master, I think of obedience. Reverence, obedience. Hear me carefully. Our God's a great king. But our God is our master. He's Lord. He doesn't just desire desire our obedience. He deserves our obedience. Notice, he's a king. He's a master. But verse 6 says, a son honoreth his father. He's a father. I think of that relationship, and I think of one word. I think of the word love reverence obedience love i tell people often and I, my dad i grew up in a home where my dad was a i'm going to say this in a nice way he was a stern disciplinarian <laughs> that sounds better than he beat the fire out of us anyway i mean he was stern disciplinarian my dad he didn't play around when he said do something we did it He believed in that. By the way, I believe in that. I believe that a a child should obey their parents and honor their parents. That's just the Bible. I remember my dad used to tell me when I was about nine years old, I started cutting grass. Acre and a half we had. And my dad had an old snapper. I remember those that had the bag. And my dad was like, no, you're going to use the bag and you're going to empty that bag every four rows. You go four rows and empty it. I mean, it took forever to cut our grass. But my dad, I remember this, 
when he would say, cut the grass, you know what? There weren't any questions. We just cut the grass. Why? He was dad. I left home when I was 17, never moved back. My dad started having some health problems probably about 10 years ago. And uh, I remember about eight years ago, I went over to my dad's house and I noticed preacher that his grass was a little higher. My dad's grass was never high. It was always cut. I went over to my dad's house and I saw that grass a little bit higher. And I said to him, I said, Dad, where's your lawnmower? He said, no, you don't have to. I said, where's the lawnmower? I went out and I cut my dad's grass real quick. Let me tell you something. I didn't have to cut my dad's grass. I'm a grown man. Pay my own bills. Have my own family. Have my own grass to cut. I didn't cut my dad's grass because he was my master. I cut my dad's grass because he was my father. And our relationship had matured to the point He didn't have to tell me I have to cut his grass. I wanted to cut his grass because I love my dad. Things change. The more me we mature in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what I find. Is God our king? Yes, he is. Does he deserve our reverence? You better believe it. Is he our master and he deserves our obedience? Yes, he is. But let me tell you, the highest motive in the Christian life is we give God our best because we just love him. And he's worthy. Is it important to give your best? Is it important that we bring our best to the Lord? We close tonight in the book, Finding Your Way. A gentleman by the name of Gary LaFeria tells this incredible story. During the Second World War, the USS Astoria engaged enemy ships in Japan on the battle for the Sago Islands. It was August the 8th. The Astoria was hit directly by torpedoes and it began to sink in shark-infested waters. He tells the story this way. A young signalman by the name of Elgin Staples from Akron, Ohio was swept overboard into these shark-infested waters. He was wounded in both legs by shrapnel, and he was kept afloat by a narrow life belt. He had a small life belt, and that's the only thing that saved his life. For two days, he stayed in those waters. Some of his friends were killed. Some were eaten by sharks. It was a horrible, horrible time. But at the end of that second day, a boat came and rescued the remaining soldiers in the water. Elgin, when he was brought out of the water, had his life belt, and they, they began to tend to him, and they tried to take his life belt, but he refused to let them take his life belt. He held on to it for dear life, and finally they just treated him. He said, don't let me, do, I want to hold on to this life belt. It's the only thing that saved my life. He held on to it. Finally, after he was honorably discharged, and he was sent back home to Akron, Ohio, He walked in and his mother saw him and he told his mother the story and recounted the story how he had survived and and he had had that life belt. It it was made, and this life belt was made from the Firestone uh, Company right there in Akron, Ohio. And the reason he held on to it was because on the back of it, it had the name of the company, but then it had a number. And he asked his mother, he said, what is this number? What does the number represent? She goes, well, it's quality control. And whoever made that is held accountable for whether they made a good product or a bad product. 
And so if they made a bad product, they could hold someone accountable for doing a bad job because obviously so, many, so much is riding on them doing a good job. Elgin said, I want to go and I want to find out who made this life belt. A couple of days later, he went down to the Firestone Company and unbeknownst to him, as he walked around the corner and showed the registration number for quality control, a man took him down a long corridor, turned right, and came back around to the left. And when he came around to the left, he walked into the office of his own mother. He had no idea that his mother had volunteered to begin serving back home. And his mother had actually made the very life belt that saved her son's life some thousands of miles away, had no idea that what she was doing mattered so much. But listen, she was giving her best. And because she gave her best, she wound up saving the life of her own son. Here's what I want to tell you tonight, church. Never underestimate what you do in the work of God as small and meaningless because listen to me, whatever you do in the work of God and for the name of Jesus Christ, it matters so much and you do not know whose soul you could be saving for all of eternity by just giving your best to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me tonight. He's worthy. He's a great king. His name is great. And what we do in his name, it matters so very much. Whether parking a car at this church, keeping a nursery, making a cup of coffee, passing an offering plate, vacuuming a floor, picking up trash on the way in, whatever you're doing in this local church for the name of Jesus, listen to me, do your best. Do your best. He's worthy. And we'll have no idea what an impact our best will make on all of eternity. God help us tonight to give our best.